0: So tonight, the College of Christ. All colleges have graduates. Not everyone graduates, but all have graduates. All have a lesson, some sort of thing you're learning, you're being trained in, you're growing, you're being trained for. Um, They also have rivals. Rivals. And Rococo religion is the rival of the College of Christ. Some of the lyrics you may have noticed. Let's go downtown. Talk to the modern kids. Let's go downtown and watch the modern kids. They will eat right out of your hand using great big words that they don't understand. Um, It's the idea of all the kids going to university, going to where all the big thinking centers are, and adopting ideas and philosophies and words, great big words they don't understand, because it seems trendy. It seems the thing, the modern thing to do. And so they adopt, and it's just, here it is, kids, and they eat right out of your hand, like a pigeon would. And we need to be careful that we are not pigeons. We're not pigeons. We don't want to be a pigeon Christian, and we don't want to buy into um, flashy philosophy and Rococo religion just because it seems good, just because it's easy to grasp. They build it up, verse 2, just to burn it back down. They build it up just to burn it back down. The wind is blowing the ashes around. This is what colleges do. We build up knowledge, and we build up these structures of understanding, and then we torch them. It's called deconstruction. Just to build it back up and say, yeah, but we can't really be sure, so let's tear it back down. Let's build it up. We can't really be sure about that. It's a lot of uh, skepticism and cynical and uh, testing and probing over and over and over. This is Rococo. This is the age of the fourth part of church history. This uh, was not only literally a style then, but it became an idea for people in their pursuit of knowledge, uh, the Enlightenment. So we've seen part one, the first couple hundred years of the church. Right after the book of Acts closed, we picked up from there and saw that the followers, the, after the original 12 die, the followers continue with a very patient but yet effective form of evangelism. They seek to grow Christians, not just Christian worship services. And then they move on to era, part two, where Constantine, the emperor of Rome, becomes a Christian and it changes everything because now the church is favored and now the church is rising into power and that power will be held all the way for the next thousand years, and at times it would be beautiful, as the Roman Empire falls and the world loses civilization, it remains in the churches, and they keep civilization going, they shelter people who are being harassed by the barbarian hordes. Yet that power ends up becoming used improperly, as too much power can do. And the church did some things that weren't great, which led us up to the next part. Um, Martin Luther, part three. Martin Luther had the audacity to say what the church is doing is not right. And the church is as powerful as any government, any king. The pope and the king were equals in this world. And Martin Luther said, I will stand up for what needs to be said to change the course of some things. And from his efforts, the Protestant Reformation began in which uh, the, the church became then the Roman Catholic Church and a bunch of other branches of new movements began to be formed, led by Martin Luther and a bunch of others who took up what was going on. And now we're in part four. And part four is really interesting because this is called the modern era. Much of what happens in these years, we are still reeling from today. The modern era developed real simply like this. So Rome had control of the world way back in the day, Jesus' time. The world was held together because of the superpower. But when Rome fell in the 400s, the world had no glue holding it together. It was literally the Dark Ages because people were in anarchy and there was chaos and violence everywhere. So the church became the emblem of glue throughout the world. It was the one place where things were still organized from the Roman era. But then Martin Luther comes against the church. And Martin Luther causes chaos. As Rome fell and brought chaos, the church as this big entity had this little crack up, its, just a little crack split down the middle, and he made it not as secure as people thought it was. And so now, rather than there being one authority on doctrine, one interpretation of scripture, one church, there were now other churches, other doctrines, other interpretations of scripture and it left the world from going this is the interpretation to whose interpretation is correct and so now you have in a way another fall of security and now the church is no longer this one huge secure thing but it's this what's going on and there's a little bit of unease as people are settling into these different areas and new churches now we talked last week about what a good thing martin luther did was and i would agree it was a very good thing to get justification, salvation by faith alone back into our doctrines. But the downside of that was now people were not sure who to follow. What church was the right church? Especially when they're all saying that they have different doctrines. And so that then led to a new epicenter of security. It was Rome, but it fell. It was a church, but it fell into these splintered areas. So now... Skeptics began to say, well, we don't know what to do with the church anymore, so let's turn to reason. Reason became the new citadel for orienting life around. And reason then launched us into, um, well, a lot of things that we're still reeling from today. So, if one word could define the church during the modern era, it's dogmatism. Now, a dogma is a belief that you hold as absolute fact and absolute truth. You're not going to budge on that belief. It's your dogma. Dogmatism characterized the church. Because now we've got a Roman Catholic church, we've got Baptists, and we've got Methodists, and we've got Presbyterians, and you can go down the list with so many of them. And they are, although on so many accounts agreed, there are different areas that make them distinct, a different doctrine or two and those became their dogma. This is why we're better than this group, and this group is better than that group, and their dogmas got elevated, and people got tired of the dogmatic discussions and arguments, because what often happened was it was only the wealthy and the educated who can partake in these discussions. The vast majority of the common people did not even understand the dogmatic arguments, and so they got really tired of the whole thing. So, With this dogmatism came three reactions. Three reactions to dogmatism. The first started with a man named George Fox. 1600s. He's in England. He doesn't like what he's seeing in any of the churches. And he has this vision for a very simple form of church. No structure. With structure's getting in the way of the Holy Spirit. So he begins to attend various churches. And when he feels the moment's right... He would stand up and interrupt the service and begin preaching his vision of Christianity in church. And he would do this in the next church and the next church. And he would go around and create this stir and he would gain these followers. And these followers became known as the friends. And the friends would gather together and they believed in no structure to their church service. So we'd gather together in silence and we would wait for the Spirit to move somebody to do something. Someone might read a passage of scripture. Someone might uh, give an encouragement. Someone might start preaching on the spot. Someone might sing a song. Someone might lead a prayer. They sit in silence until the Spirit moves somebody to do something. And they were guided by what they called the inner light. The inner light was within everybody. Not everybody had it as intensely as others. Some, it was dim, and they didn't even know it was there. But everyone had the inner light. And it was about getting in tune with that light of God and getting... Uh, getting to see it, and then letting it lead your life, the inner light. This group of people would later be known as the Quakers because of their fervency. They would often quake when they were in their worship services. And they thus, <laughs> kind of like Christians was originally a negative term for the early church. It was pagans saying, oh, you're little Christ. And that was not necessarily meant to be a compliment for them. Um, so they became known as Christians. The Quakers, oh, uh, the Quakers. Those people that shake, <laughs> uh, the Quakers became known as that. Now, um, George Fox had his most famous follower was named um, William Penn. William Penn was granted a plot of land from the crown in America, and William Penn went there, and this plot of land became known as the colony of Pennsylvania. Now, the Quakers in England were persecuted. Nobody liked the Quakers except of course Quakers. Uh, So William Penn went to America and with him, the Quakers, of course, but he believed that religious tolerance was extremely important to make this colony work. So yes, the Quakers would be in Pennsylvania, but they would be kind and accepting to all other aspects of the faith. And that actually became the foundational stone to our constitution, freedom of religion. So the Quakers are to thank for that. But that was one reaction to dogmatism: is whoa, whoa, whoa! Stop with all this like high church and high doctrine. Let's just like get in tune with the inner light and the spirit. And so it was very just flowy like that. Um, so that would be called Spiritism. Another reaction would be called Pietism. Now, pietism was essentially, It started in Germany, but it grew really quickly and um, their fundamental emphasis was on bible study personal devotion and spiritual experience so while there was a lot of dogmas being driven and a lot of high church services with their you know their priests and the whole performance and all these other things that the denominations were doing as well um, the pietism movement sought simply to just study the bible together sounds interesting doesn't it what a good idea um So the one who made this really popular in England was named John Wesley. John Wesley was a failed Anglican priest. Actually, I think he started as a, well, it doesn't matter. Um, he, He had a few failings, and then he went into a church service, heard someone reading scripture, actually heard someone reading from a commentary on scripture. It was, Mike shared this last week. It was John Calvin's, no, Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. He heard it read, and he said that he felt his heart strangely warmed. And from there, he started to gather people together to study the Bible, like intense studying, not just little readings in the service, but they were actually getting out commentaries. They were digging into it. They were reading it together. They were discussing it. They were studying it. Now, this movement began to grow. Um, But John Wesley was an Anglican priest. That's the high church of England, an Anglican priest. And so he would encourage this movement to not leave the Anglican church. We would come together, he would say, to study the Bible as a warm-up to the Anglican church services. And then they would go into the service and they would have communion there with the priest giving the communion. So John Wesley was trying to do both. These little, like, almost like, hey, the Anglican church isn't meeting everybody's needs, so we're going to do these, like, intense Bible study movements on the side and the Anglican church wasn't able to reach all the people as the industrial age began to move outward. um, It was John Wesley and his Bible study groups that would go to these places that the Anglican church wasn't reaching. Well, in time, this movement became very big, and John Wesley needed help because they didn't have enough teachers for this. So he couldn't find enough help, so he ended up letting lay people teach, kind of like Chuck Smith did. (laughs) Letting people that were not trained in the seminaries and didn't have degrees started leading some of these Bible study groups. And he refused to have leadership over them. Overseers, but no bishops, no priests, just these informal kind of Bible study groups. Um, Of course, by the time um, John Wesley died off, some things kind of changed a little bit and we now know the movement as the Methodists. Uh, But that was one of the reactions to the dogmatism so we saw that people seeking the inner light. Then we saw people returning to just Bible study and personal devotion. And then the third reaction to dogmatism was, hang it all up, it's worthless. Reason will guide us. Reason alone. God gave us reason, so we should use our reason to figure the world out. And if something doesn't make sense to the intellect and the reason, then we should throw it out because it doesn't fit. So a lot of things came out of this um, The philosophers of France, like Voltaire, came out of this. Immanuel Kant came out of this. So you have your philosophers, but you also have your science came out of this. Obviously, um, Charles Darwin came out of the the rationalist movement. Um, And the Enlightenment happened. So... In like the 1700s, there's this movement where people begin using their reason. They start discovering things about the world. And instead of really uh, Christianity becoming the center of how the world works, it became the reason and the sciences and the philosophies that became the center of how the world worked. And we began to see this subtle divide happening between the sacred and the secular. There began to be these two groups now. Not everything's sacred anymore. Reason is now leading the secular age where we have the sciences and philosophies. Speaking of Charles Darwin, so he, in the 1800s, begins to observe, um, as we all know, he's observing finches and notices that they have different beak sizes, or beak sizes that are perfectly attuned to what they're trying to do. And it dawns on him that, hey, maybe species um, develop what they need for their habitat over time which started then to be called uh, the natural selection of the species, survival of the fittest, evolution, what have you. And so this, um, this, was, this moved really fast in the scientific community. And um, for one reason, we don't have to deal with the old ages anymore. We can keep moving. We don't need the church anymore to explain the world. We can explain it now with Darwinism. So we can keep moving forward. Um, but another thing is that it made perfect sense to people evolution because evolution proposed that creatures are getting more and more adapted to their world and they're getting better it's this idea of progress in nature well we've we've they the world's been seeing progress um the industrial age is seeing a higher standard of living as people are getting more money and more technologies being developed. Uh, learning the sciences and philosophy is growing. Literacy is growing. Cities are getting bigger and more magnificent. If the world is progr- oh, and by the way, they're exploring new lands are being discovered, like America. And so the world is growing and expanding. And so if everything seems to be getting better, and and, in the sense of moving with progress, then the thinking was, well, duh, why wouldn't nature be moving in the same direction? So let's adopt evolution, which was a huge curveball, because for centuries, everyone assumed that the world was static. Static means it doesn't move or change. God created it exactly like it is. It stays the way it is until God intervenes and brings his kingdom. Well, suddenly evolution said, no, it's not a static universe. It's a dynamic universe. It's moving and changing just like peoples and cultures and societies are moving and changing. And so everyone ate this up, of course. And then there were two reactions within the church to Darwin. One, nope, this promotes atheism. No God needs to be involved in this system. We reject it wholly, as does Calvary Chapel. Then there was the other side, though, more of the liberal, which will become the liberal branch of Christianity that said, no, 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 no. this makes perfect sense. Evolution's got to be a thing. And what this means then is that the world isn't just stationary waiting for God to come intrude in it. It means that God has already come and it's sort of, the kingdom of God's an organic thing. It's an organic process that's just going to come about as we continue to advance the world with philosophy and science. So, rather than waiting for God to bring the kingdom, we have work to do right now to build the kingdom, and of course, this led to an eschatology known as post-millennialism, which if you guys remember back in Revelation, good job, but you probably, I don't know if you do, you can check it out, we did a whole message on the whole millennium thing, but this is the idea that we will bring the kingdom to earth when we get it in a stable, proper place. And so this swept half of Christianity while the other half rejected Darwinism. Um, World War I and World War II caused severe doubts about this thinking, although it still survives to this day. They would say World War I and II were just a step back, but we're still making two steps forward. So, here you have dogmatism leading to these reactions, Quakers, Methodists, and rationalism which climaxes with Darwinism. And that's what we're still feeling the effects of. Now, we can now go to Colossians chapter 2. So, there are so many isms in the world, aren't there? So you have Darwinism, we even have Evangelicalism, (laughs) we have Calvinism, um, Catholicism, like even in the church there's isms, but outside, right, there's a... uh, We can go like pagan, like pantheism. You can talk about humanism. You can talk about empiricism. You can talk about, there's so many isms out there. And I think the Bible still has something to say about that. And so in an age where there's so many isms, so many philosophies, so many beliefs, and so many which rub against scripture, we must beware of the Rococo religion, of the fancy philosophy, of that which glitters but has no depth or substance. And that's what Paul writes to. So Colossae was a city. So the Colossians were the people of the church of Colossae. Colossae was this really important city. Um, It was in this kind of like tri-city area. So you have Laodicea, which you know from Revelation. You have Hierapolis, and you have Colossae. These three cities formed a triangle, huge trade center, big stopping area for traders going across Asia Minor. So Colossae was receiving a ton of cultural information and other countries' influences. So it became really, kind of like America in a way, this sort of melting pot of all kinds of ideas. And the Colossian church is It seems, from what we know from the book, that Paul is writing to them to say, hey, yeah, there's all of these ideas and these isms and these philosophies and these religions and these ideas mulling about in your city, but don't just eat right out of everyone's hand. Don't just rococo this all the way. Stay with Christ. Christ is all you need. Christ will be your filter to find out if these isms and stuff actually work in life. So he's going to write to them, Christ is all you need. So, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want, by the way, he's writing, chapter 1, he gave this lofty poem about the preeminence of Christ, that everything comes from him and is in him, that he is the source of all. Then he's giving him admonition in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know, How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ I want you guys to be unified together. Don't, don't fall into dogmatism either. That's another ism that may not be good. Don't, don't fight and, and hold your, your ground too tightly on certain doctrines that are going to divide you. Be knit together in love and um, have full assurance the riches of the knowledge of Christ. Verse 3, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Does that not ring relevant with us? that no one persuade you with plausible arguments, that you stand firm in your faith in Christ. We have an age where people feel that tension, and it's really hard to hold faith in Christ when atheism has fantastic arguments and evolutions being shoved down your throat and creationism's not taught at all whatsoever. And, you know, we have all these things going on, right? And it seems like it's an age where we can relate to what Paul's saying Wait, wait, but how, how do we work this out then? If all the wisdom and the riches of knowledge, if all of those are in Christ, how come nobody else is seeing that? And, 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 and how come it's hard for some young Christians and even um, less young Christians to hold on to that? So Paul says in verse six, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? We didn't have to have lengthy debates about reason and intellect. In one way, the Quakers have it a little bit right. You know, you felt that there was something about God that you wanted within you. Um, even even John Wesley, and just look, let's have personal devotion toward this being called God. Let's relate to him beyond. Now, we're throwing a lot of Christian cliches out. It doesn't really help the person that's not there. It helps you who are. But you have faith. Keep going. We're going to get to that. So as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. So don't start adding more and more and more, thinking, well, that's, you know, it's not enough. But Jesus is enough. And verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving see that no one here he goes again warning us see it see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ beware For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled, or you are complete in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. He's all you need, Paul says, so sometimes we doubt that God is enough, that God has what it takes to help make life go forward, to help us uh, in our pain or suffering, or to help make sense of the fact that there is pain or suffering. Sometimes people look at God and say, he's not enough, he's not doing it for me. I have to look to other things. I want to keep an open mind to these other philosophies. And Paul just simply wants to warn like, okay, whoa, whoa, look, you're going to hear these things and that's fine. We live in a world that's spewing out through media all kinds of belief systems. But in Christ is truly the fullness of everything. Because as he says in chapter 1, he's the head of all creation. Everything comes from him. So all of these philosophies really are just these confused ways of talking about the one God. But they're all confused and got lost somewhere. Almost like you're on a freeway and you're going to your destination. And you start off right. You found the right road. But you got off way too early. Oh, look at that, um, dinosaur, statue dinosaurs. Let's get off right there and take pictures by them. <laughs> um, different like, attractions, right? Oh, date shakes. Let's go do that too. So um, the largest hole in the world. <laughs> you go off, and, and sometimes they go, and they explore, and then they stay there. So there's a little bit of truth in just about every idea, just about every philosophy, just about every scientific approach. There's a little bit of truth. As C.S. Lewis would say, the most dangerous lie is mostly true, and so it's just a matter of how far our ideas going down that highway, and then turn off right before they get to Christ, the substance. Now, he talked about empty philosophies, definitely in verse chapter one, verse twenty seven. Uh, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are in Him; He is in you. And there's this idea that in God's world, there is substance. In this world, it's empty. Almost as if when God created everything, he infused his being and his essence and his substance into everything so that it's so real and life-giving and beautiful. But then when humanity sins against God, they tear away from his world. And when they tear away from his world, it's as if they take the shell of the seed of reality. They just take the husk and they say, this is now our world. Let's decorate it because it's just a husk. It's just empty. Let's fill it. Let's make it something better. Though in the whole time, God is saying, yeah, but behind everything you guys see and touch and talk about and these ideas, behind everything, you're just looking at the husk, the shell of it, because there's actually a substance behind all of it. We just often don't go deep enough. We don't go far enough to see that Christ is in all, as Colossians 1.17 says that he in He is holding all things together. That Paul says in Him we move and breathe and have our being. Romans also ends by saying all things are to Him, through Him, and for Him. He is everywhere. That if you have a cosmos, it is in Christ. He's bigger than the cosmos. The universe is in Christ. But here's where it gets really cool. Christ is not only there, he's also in the universe. Follow this. The universe, this empty shell of sin and emptied of God, is inside Christ, but Christ is inside the universe at the same time. And that's the same with us. We say we are in Christ, and then Christ is also in us. This is true intimacy and union and oneness when you're not just in somebody but they're also in you. But here's what happens. I want you to imagine some water and there's a boat floating on top, bobbing on the waves. This boat is the universe. This water is God. And we, there's some, you know, people on this boat. And they're studying it. They're making sure it's strong and sturdy. Like, ooh, look at the oars here or the sails there or the rudder or the motor or whatever area you're thinking. <laughs> look at this and look at that. And, and, and they're, they're observing it, but they're keeping it all intact. They're making it run and they're talking about it above God. This is what science does, isn't it? It looks at our universe apart from and above God. But then something happens. They don't know how or where, but somewhere there's a leak in the boat. The water starts coming into it and onto it. And they're thinking, this is not good. So you start getting buckets and you start bailing the water out. Help, help us quick. Everybody get the water out of here. This cursed water is ruining everything. And they keep trying to throw God out. (laughs) But the only way, what God is actually looking for is not us to stay above him, keep throwing the water out. He's actually trying to seep in and he's trying to bring the whole thing down into him. So that when a boat sinks, the boat is then in the ocean, but the ocean is also in the boat. And this is what happens with faith. Faith is that moment when we take the bucket and say, let's go down with the ship, and you throw the bucket overboard. Faith says, let's see where this big God takes us. I may not be able to explain how, where this leak is and how this is happening, but I'm going to let it happen. Paul wants the Colossians to realize that the world is in Christ and Christ is in the world, that they are in Christ and that Christ is in them. And with this, there is no emptiness. We don't have to seek out What is Rococo in the world? We don't have to keep building things up just to find out it doesn't work and burn it back down over and over. But faith is hard for a lot of people. Not everybody has faith. Have you ever heard somebody tell you, I wish I had your faith? They want it, but they feel like they can't have it. Faith is very diverse, Many people have different, are in different places when it comes to faith in God. So if we can use the whole highway analogy again, we're going to use it differently though. I want you to imagine faith is that road which brings us to Christ. And on the way, on this highway, there are different on-ramps where different people are getting on. And it's not the same for everybody, but they're getting on. So to make it simple, there's basically six on-ramps. First is the person who starts on the highway at the beginning. This guy takes the path of belief. Always believes. Has never really had a problem with his faith. Yeah, there might be some things he can't explain, but he's always considered God to be good, and God to be his hope when things are not good. Um, We might think that that's perfect. But you who are this person who's been on this path of belief for a long time, we also must be careful that we don't get complacent on this road, too used to it, that we're just kind of idling on our way. Or to the point where we've so mastered this road, we get upset with the newbies that come on learning how to drive. (laughs) Idiot, use your blinker. It's called a turnout. (laughs) You just got to be careful. (laughs) So as you're on this, the believer... Um, I, would, I would assume that's a good majority, uh, or maybe half, I don't know, I'm just throwing it out there, there's a lot that go to church would be considered the believer. But then you have the on-ramp of independence. The independent is the person who believes in God, so they're getting on pretty early too, but the independent doesn't believe in the church. Um, they think that structure is not good, and it's kind of too limiting, and maybe it's dogmatism that gets in the way for them. I don't know what it, or Christians themselves. Um, but for whatever reason, I think all of us know this person. I believe in God, but I don't go to church. I don't want to be connected with a fellowship. There's a lot of these too, but they're still believers in God. So the danger here for them is that they can just become hypercritical of everything. Well, this church isn't perfect enough, and that one isn't perfect enough. I've tried every denomination. I've even tried Catholicism, and it's just none of it's... Well, who's, who's at the center of your universe? <laughs> so that's, that's the independence. The third on-ramp is the disbeliever. What? <laughs> yeah, the, the disbeliever. Sometimes we don't start off believing... Or we have a hard time believing, but we wanting as best as we can to follow because we see something there, or it just takes us a while to believe. But this is the person who's getting on who says God either may not or does not exist. But these people are valuable and we should let them into the vein because the disbeliever has probably wrestled with the concept of God way more than the believer has. Because the believer's taken this for granted. But the disbelievers ask questions. They have critiqued different doctrines and ideas and philosophies, and they said, "I can't accept the God because of this and that." And whether they ever come to faith or not, if they stay on the surface streets and never get on the freeway, they've been looking at us a long time, and they can see it differently than we see it on the freeway. And we can't discredit atheists or agnostics as irrelevant. They can actually be some of the most valuable prophets to the church today, if we will listen. They see things that we don't see because they see it from a fresher perspective. They say that doesn't make sense, that's baloney. Christians are full of baloney, by the way. We have a lot of sayings that kind of ease our conscience but make no sense. Um, Yeah, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That's, That's a great promise for us to hold on to, but it's really hard to get the person in the midst of suffering to understand that. Don't put a Bible band-aid on me. I'm hurting. <laughs> um, sometimes we're not we don't see these things because we've just accepted it and taken it for granted. But the atheist or the agnostic can say, If you guys think about that hole in your talking, and so it's not for them to change what we believe, but to maybe change how we talk about what we believe or how we practice what we believe. So when you're at Thanksgiving in a couple days and you have that uncle or that brother, or that son or daughter, Um, you know, maybe Thanksgiving isn't going to be the time where we try to argue them into the kingdom. They've argued themselves out, so I don't know what you're trying to do. Um, Maybe it's the time just to listen to them. Maybe we can learn from them. Um, This one Christian thinker says that sometimes we go evangelize people, but maybe we should try being evangelized by people, by the unsaved. (laughs) What what he means by that is we're just so like gung-ho on our dogmatism and everyone's like, oh my gosh, the Christians, maybe we should actually hear what they think about us for a change. Or maybe hear where they're coming from, or hear what they're wrestling with, and help them get onto the freeway of faith. Maybe. Anyway, so that's the third one. The, so we've got the believer, we've got the, ind- the path of independence, the path of the disbeliever. We also have the, the, the on-ramp of return. That's the person who started on the freeway, got distracted by something, on, and took a, took a detour, And some years have gone by, and like, I should probably get back on the trip. (laughs) And they get back on the freeway. So sometimes this is somebody who's been raised in the church, and they've known all of this all their life, but they never actually grow into a a mature adult kind of faith. They still have a very childish faith where um, everything's just super, like... All I do is ask God for this, and he does it for me. And then when God stops answering my prayers, like, I lose my faith. Like, you see people like that. Or, or, oh, God's all good, and that's all. But then there's, like, suffering. I don't know how to answer that. And they just get off. They get off the bandwagon. Or life gets busy. Or college hits them really hard. Uh, they get off. But then they have a family. And they're like, maybe we should think about church again. Or, or they have a crisis. Or they've reached the apex of their career. And they're like, this is so empty and so they give it back, they come back to their roots and get back on. That's a very difficult one because you often are bringing a lot of uh, knickknacks you got at the souvenir stores while you're off. <laughs> and you're bringing that with you, you've got to kind of sort through that clutter to find the map. <laughs> um, the fourth, or that is the, wait, we got, so we got belief, we got independence, we got disbelief, we got return. The fifth on ramp is exploration. So you have that person who has not been on the freeway. You're getting closer to the goal and they haven't even hit the freeway because they're just so into everything. They're like, I don't like maps. Throw out my iPhone. No GPS. Let's just see where this road goes. Ooh, that's a cool coffee shop. I've always wanted to go to Fenway Park. Let's drive there next. And they're just exploring everything because they, they want to know everything. They're like, why is there only one road? Let's find another way to get there. And so by the time at the end, they've explored a lot of different ideas, a lot of different dogmas, a lot of different faiths, a lot of different even religions, and they've got this whole thing with them, and they come onto the on-ramp, and it's really powerful when they do when they come to faith. Because they haven't just been stuck in this like little tunnel vision of your specific denomination or tradition forever and ever and ever. They've got so many things going on with them. And they're, be, they're able to sift through now what Christ is and what Christ isn't. And um, sometimes it can be really refreshing to talk to someone who's been around um, to many different... Um, it's, it's like It's like someone who is... There's someone in here who's been a Catholic and then a charismatic and then... Baptist and I <laughs> think Calvary Chapel, like like this is a, that's broad right there, and some you know they come with a lot of perspective. Uh, the negative thing though of trying to get on that way, if you're thinking, oh that sounds like a good idea, I'm going to explore, then get on. Um, the bad thing is that sometimes you never actually get on, you never actually commit. You're like live on the surface streets all your life, or what you're doing basically is you're trying to get a god who can fit in your pocket. So a little bit of this religion or this idea, because I like these when throwing the rest out. So I can just keep them in my pocket, and when it gets too loud, I can turn them down. <laughs> um, and then finally, the sixth on-ramp is the on-ramp of confusion, way down the road, kind of towards the end. There's some people that are just flat-out confused. They want to believe in God, but they don't know how, or they, do, they can't, or there's these things that are hung up by, Or like, but why did God take my mother when I was five? All of these kinds of confusions. Um... Maybe they've been hurt by a church leader before. Maybe they were molested by someone. Maybe um, they have um, emotional problems. You know, Whatever it is, it's taken them a long time, but they're gradually getting on. They've had to wrestle through some hard things, and so they're valuable when they can finally get that confidence. Like, yeah, I know what it is to doubt. I know what it is to not get it. I can understand the person who doesn't understand what we're talking about because I was there faith is not as simple as just believe is what I'm saying. Everyone is going to get on at a different part on the highway. And when we are with our family and our friends and we're frustrated at their unbelief, we need to remember that maybe they're just getting on a little further down the road. Um, Maybe not everyone's supposed to start the way you did or get on at the same place you did. It doesn't matter as long as we get to the place where we find that the substance and the essence and the source of life is beyond the rococo flourish but it's behind that there is christ everywhere permeating with life and that's what we're after so faith isn't just something that hits you with a bolt of lightning although it did literally martin luther but that was a unique occurrence um It was a bolt of lightning that woke him up to God and made him start reading the scriptures and turn the whole thing upside down. Uh, But that won't happen to all of us. Um, Faith is often something that has to be cultivated, worked at. We like the path of the believer. The person seems to not really struggle with his belief. But listen, it's not that faith is just something that someone gets, like at the grocery store. I like some of that. Thank you. Swipe it it's often a gift from God and it's grown by God within us. And we have to understand that the college of Christ works differently than the Rococo religion and the, and the flashy philosophies of the world. That in the college of Christ, it's a long degree. There's no overnight night school or a one year degree or uh, like the, it's a lot of sitting at his feet Oh, it's a lot of lecture. It's a lot of homework that the teacher does not respond to your text to to help you with. It's a lot of that. It's a lot of dark nights. It's a lot of amazing, I love this school. We have so much fun with that thing we did. And then it's a lot of, I hate my faculty. I hate the students. I hate the College of Christ is long and it's suffering sometimes, but it grows faith. It grows this ability to look not just at the shell of the boat, but that there is something in it. To allow the holes of life to fill us up with God. To allow us to sink trustingly into his ocean of love and mercy. So, here are some pointers for us to graduate from the college of Christ. Paul said there in Colossians 2, verse 6, As you received... Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. This is how you get established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Just as you receive the Christ Lord, so walk or so live in him. You want to walk down the aisle? Here's how. Walk in him. Number one, theology. 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 Is super important. Theology is the study of God, and it's often used as a big, as a word that sort of encompasses everything Christians believe. Theology. This is what Paul says here, is he says, verse 7, be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So the faith isn't just something like, I want it, and you got it downloaded into you. That would be awesome, but it doesn't work that way. You've got to go through the classes. You've got to go through the tedium of the college of Christ. It's the patient gradual growth in him as we listen to messages, as we read our Bibles, as we pick up books that help us see God more differently, as we talk to one another at the dinner table and share our experiences as, as we walk with Christ and exchange prayer requests and spend those quiet moments in prayer and go on retreats. All of these things encompass the college of Christ and faith is grown little by little as we do these things theology all of it's being poured into us we need it now now theology is not dogmatism that's what got the church into trouble and all these branches and hair splitting arguments about (laughs) you you wait 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 the trinity is what no it's this and like are you serious is it the same relationship or the same substance what and people like uh, go crazy on this sometimes theology is not the end That's when you flunk the college of Christ. This is is step one, theology. Now, theology is those sets of beliefs that the faith starts with. Faith starts with agreeing with some ideas about God, some beliefs. But it doesn't stop there. Your faith is not on paper. Your faith is not an argument. It's not, this is what I adhere to. Your faith uses those things so it can then rest in God. So it can then let the water of God fill your ship and sink you into his embrace. That's faith, and that's where it ends. But too many times, the faith becomes about this set of beliefs, and we stop there at doctrine. We stop there at theology. And that's when we have divisions and that's when we can't stand one another and that's when we have these Harris, these arguments over, over these fine little words or different ideas that doesn't even change the world. It just changes I look smarter than you kind of stuff. The College of Christ has no room for rivalry within. It's rivalry against what's without. So theology is one of the ways we graduate but then it must lead us to thanksgiving if you 're learning of God, if you 're growing in the faith does not produce as Paul says here, so verse seven rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, then second abounding in thanksgiving. So if this being built up and rooted and established in the faith just as you were taught does not lead to thanksgiving you 're learning about the wrong God, or your theology is off and awful. <laughs> The highest form of theology is thanksgiving. Grumblers who hold the word and expound it and have all kinds of negative things to say <laughs> about everyone and life and everything and themselves and God, and <laughs> that's not theology, that's self. But if, if theology leads us to see the one it's describing and to thank him for the water and the birds and the trees and food and friends and family and the turkey and the <laughs> and so forth, um, that is when it's working properly. Theology opens the eyes. See, too many of us are still looking at the boat, trying to keep the water out of the boat, save the ship. And God's like, but that's not, that's a lot. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? You feel like life's just about chucking water out because you're about to go down? You're not thankful for anything. You're cursing the leaks. You're cursing the people who don't throw water out as fast as you. Um, you're cursing the weight of water. Why can't it be more like air? You're cursing the fact that you don't eat right and don't exercise, so you're like really tired. You're cursing the kink in your arm, and you're like, why is the chiropractor not on board because I need him right now? You're like, all these things. Um, that's not Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, though, is when we let the theology lead us to the one it's describing. Faith starts with a set of beliefs, but then goes to God himself. And when you get there, you know you're there because you're thankful. You're thankful. And the church needs to be known more for its gratitude in the world and not its dogmatism. Not what we argue about or fight over or what we're against, but gratitude and thanksgiving. And so, yeah, yeah. We're going to see annoying people this week. We're going to hear their annoying philosophies. There's going to be those rants about politics and gun control and Trump. And, you know, all those things are going to come up. They, it seems like every family is someone that likes to stir the pot. Um, what's your narrative? What's your language going to be? Are we going to have gratitude? We're going to say, yeah, but you know what? We got to vote. <laughs> uh, or, what, you know, just that's an example. Brothers and sisters, the College of Christ instills within us theology that uses faith, and faith does not ignore reason. It just says, you know what? More important than keeping the ship spick and span is letting it get engulfed. So that I'm not just in Christ; He's in me. Theologians who skim on the top of God talk like they own God. Sink that ship. You want to be in God and him in you. Um, And then let that lead to Thanksgiving. That's when we know it's working.